Hi friends. Pastors are not immune to sexual temptations and sexual strongholds, but many pastors feel isolated and even trapped from reaching out for help with their private sexual struggles. On today's episode, we have Mark Dennison join us to share with us some key principles from his new book, Broken Vessels, on how pastors can get help to break free from sexual strongholds and even still be used by God for kingdom work. To learn more about Mark and his ministry, visit therestillhope.org. For more resources, visit bebroken.org or check out links in today's show notes. And please rate and review the podcast after you listen because this really does help others to find it. Pure Sex Radio is produced by Be Broken Ministries, and Be Broken's mission is to help men, women, and families move from sexual brokenness to wholeness in Christ and equip others to do the same. Now let's dive into today's conversation with Mark. All right. Well, Mark Dennison, welcome to the program. Thanks, Jonathan. Great to be with you. I should say welcome back. We've actually had you on several times. I was looking just uh, recently, all the way back in 2018 was the first time we had, uh, we actually had you and your wife, Beth, on the program to share about your ministry and and your story. Um, But it has been a couple of years since we've had you on, uh, giving you plenty of time to write another book. Um, But I just wanted to ask you first to just kind of share a little bit with our listeners. We are going to be talking about a book that you've written called Broken Vessels that's really designed specifically for pastors who are struggling. Um, But give us a little background on your story and kind of how you got into this space of ministry and maybe even why this book and why now? Oh, happy to do that. I was a senior pastor for 31 years, uh, born and raised in Houston, and my entire ministry was in Texas. So I pastored three churches over a 31-year period of time. But during that time, also was struggling with a personal sexual addiction, did not get help for that until well into my ministry, and eventually found recovery uh, in about 2013, 2014, uh, but eventually it cost me my ministry, some things of my struggle became known. And so I resigned from my church and we moved to Florida to be near our son. But I never could quite get out of my mind and my head and my heart uh, pastors because that had been my life for so long. And so when God called us to start our ministry, There's Still Hope, uh, in 2017, we launched the ministry with an intent to help anyone struggling with sexual brokenness and their spouses. But it did not take long before God just kept bringing back to me the struggle I had had from my own experience and knowing so many pastors. And it just seemed like it made sense to let my problem become my platform and knowing the struggles that I had and that other pastors have. Having done study on this and preparing for the ministry, it just makes sense to really make a focus of what we do on pastors. And so we've started to reach out to pastors and do groups for pastors. We're starting another group for pastors next month. And so that was the genesis of this. And what came from that was the book, Broken Vessels, written for pastors and part of it by pastors. Yeah, so... um... What kind of response have you gotten as you have started pivoting and really trying to focus more on inviting pastors into a space of really honesty, transparency, kind of the recovery environment? Um, because I think sometimes, at least in in my uh, sphere and kind of even just in my experience, um, that can be a challenging invitation for a pastor to respond to. 
So what what's the experience that you've been having in terms of, and how are you inviting pastors into these spaces for help? Well, it's been interesting because the people I thought would respond didn't, and those who I didn't even know have, meaning uh, guys from a pretty eclectic background from all over the world. Uh, younger men have responded more than older men. Mm. Men who maybe came from more of a grace perspective on things rather than those that came from maybe a more legalistic background. And so um, the response has been really strong uh, as we've begun to reach out and as word gets out, we're doing this sort of thing. Um, and it's, it's been exciting to watch that because it, is, it has crossed so many denominational lines and, and there just are no lines anymore, it seems. So that's, that's really been a blessing to us. It's opened my mind a lot as a guy who had been a pastor within a certain denomination for so many years that this issue is so much bigger than that. And that's what's really been fun in being in conferences such as the ones that you've done to connect with people that come from a lot of different backgrounds. Um, so it's been well received, but not always by the people I maybe thought it would have been. Yeah. So tell us about the book in terms of of how it's structured, kind of like how have you laid it out? And then what are the key uh, points or principles that you're trying to outline in the book? Sure, I'd love to. Well, I have it right here, so I can refer to it, Broken Vessels. And we have a picture there of the broken vessel based on imagery from, from the scripture that that's who we are as pastors. We've been broken. We're broken, but God puts us back together. We focus on, there's 10 chapters, but throughout the book, some of the highlights, I would say, first off, how big the problem is. Um, we address that with just a multitude of studies that have been done, starting with the breadth of uh, pornography and sexual brokenness, sexual addiction, and the nation in the United States, and then narrowing it down to within the church. And uh, I won't bore you with a lot of data, but we do know, and we give a lot of the data here in the book, that the problem within the church is basically as widespread as it is outside the church. And then within the church, the problem within clergy, paid staff, vocational ministry is uh, huge. And we have numbers anywhere from 37 to 43 percent of senior pastors are viewing pornography or acting out sexually um, outside of their marriage on a regular basis compared to 62% of men in the church at large. So it, it's still a, a, a massive issue. Mm -hmm. And we also know that 75% of pastors have no accountability at all by their own admission. And only 7% of churches are even addressing this at all. So, so the book begins with, with talking about just the magnitude of the problem and the fact that we're not equipping churches to respond to this, particularly among pastors. Mm -hmm. You know, as you were saying that, one of the things that popped into my head when you talk about the the culture at large in the church, having 62% of men that are regularly acting out sexually in some way, and then up to 43% of pastors, uh, senior pastors in the same way, um, it made me think, and I'd love to get your response on this. I don't want to get too sidetracked, but it, it just popped into my head because I, I do want us to get through the rest of the book. But it makes me wonder how much of that might be related in your view to there being a culture of fear and suspicion around sexual issues in our Christian communities. Absolutely agree with that. Um, there is a reticence to open up, you know, the opposite of addiction is connection. And 
pastors are scared to death to connect on an intimate level with other people because they know that if they are found out and found to be less than whatever that model is of what's expected, that it's going to cost them dearly. And so they isolate, they uh, internalize everything. They're the last ones to get help. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's a huge, huge problem. So where do you go after you kind of address the enormity of the problem to really kind of take a next step with a pastor? One of the questions that I address is whether or not it's possible to love God and pornography at the same time. And we delve into the Romans 7 thing about what I know I want to do, I find myself not doing, what I don't want to do, I find myself doing, a wretched man that I am. And that's where so many pastors struggle, is they feel like if I even admit that this is a problem, what I'm really saying is I just don't love God. It's purely a spiritual problem. And we know it's not. And so I talk some about what I've created, what I call an addiction pyramid. And the pyramid has four parts to it. The top of it is the acting out, the actual act itself, whether it's masturbation, pornography, prostitution, whatever it is. And we normally uh, just look at that top of the pyramid and we say, just stop doing that. The second layer would be the triggers, which I have um, used an acronym I call BLAST. When we're bored, lonely, angry, stressed, or tired, or more susceptible, and pastors struggle with all five of those. And then the third layer of the pyramid is whatever feeds that. For example, anger is usually the result of resentment or pain. So the pastor has pain because things aren't going well in his ministry or he's not being respected or followed or whatever, or he has resentment because he's underappreciated. And then we go to what's beneath that at the bottom of the pyramid. Studies show there are three things that usually feed that which feeds the triggers, which feed the addiction. And that is trauma, abuse, and isolation. So many pastors have come from traumatic backgrounds. They are wounded. They want to help others that are wounded. They have uh, a tendency to isolate sometimes. And there's been emotional trauma, emotional abuse. So from all of that comes the need to um, self-medicate eventually or to help other people. And so talk a lot about that pyramid because that helps to explain how we got there. And, and to dig a little deeper from, than that, more specifically, that's a general answer, but why is it the pastors themselves struggle? And, and I list several things in the book, but four things in particular. One is that studies show, and my own experience as a pastor certainly validates this, the pastors don't have good boundaries. I'm going to the hospital. What does that mean? Where's the hospital? How long am I really there? Uh, we let women into our office because they're hurting. They need someone to talk to. Uh, even though someone's in the next office, there's a connection that happens there. I think pastors are more attractive than other people to the opposite sex simply because we're pastors. Women look at us. I don't mean physically, but women will say to the pastor, why can't my husband listen to me the way you do? Mm. And so we don't have boundaries. Second thing, we don't have accountability. So I've said 75% of pastors, zero accountability. Nobody knows where we are. They don't know who we're talking to. They don't know who we're texting. They don't know what the conversations are like. Pastors struggle in this area also because we tend to isolate. And then because we're very relational, we connect well with other people. And that's a good thing. If we don't do that, we're not good pastors. But the flip side of that is that that is a perfect setup for failure. You know, I, I was talking to a pastor recently who said that where he got in trouble was a couple came to see him. 
and it was a night in his office because the man was pretty well known, the husband, and nothing wrong with that at all. But they're in this counseling session. The husband gets up and says, I need to use the restroom. So he gets up, goes down the hall to use the restroom. Now the pastor's in the office with this man's attractive wife, waiting for the husband to return from the restroom. No one did anything wrong until they hear a car start outside. And apparently the husband decided to use the restroom down the street because he left. And so now pastor's in the office with this married man's wife who has no way home. What does he do? She's not responding to the calls. And he did the right thing, which was to wait for her to get a ride home from someone else. He wants to give a ride home. But when someone else shows up, he's there alone with the wife. And during those moments that transpired, nothing happened that was inappropriate. But a connection happened because she is looking at, the, at this man who's a pastor and saying, you get me. And that just set him up for all kinds of potential trouble. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of reasons pastors struggle more than anybody else. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the the pyramid that you talk about, I think, you know, that's so applicable to to anyone. Right. Um, I think it I, I like the fact that then you started kind of honing that into um, how does this specifically address pastors and the boundaries issues? Um what are some other things that you bring up in the book that would be really specifically pertinent to pastors who struggle? And one of the things that I'm thinking of is how, and, and I don't know if you get into this necessarily into the book, but how does a pastor even begin to think about bringing his secret into the light when there's so many factors as a pastor that can feel threatening to do that? Now, that's a great question, and, and we do address that a lot. Uh, for example, saying the right thing to the wrong person at the right time is catastrophic, and so it's important for the pastor to have um, certain guardrails in place. I address, I give seven or eight of them. One of those, directly in response to what you're saying, is that there needs to be an accountability partner, someone who absolutely knows everything that he's struggling with, who preferably is someone outside the church, but someone with whom, and this is getting pretty uh, detailed, but where there's some accountability within the church tied to this individual so that the pastor has given this accountability person 100% permission, perhaps even in writing, to report back to this elder or this staff member, executive pastor, whomever it might be, if he has crossed certain lines. And so he, he has the freedom to share with this person, but knowing that there needs to be some level of accountability there as well. Another thing we talk about a lot, which is really helpful for the pastor, is to follow the example of Christ with what uh, I call the man code. And I borrowed this idea from a guy named Dennis Swanberg. And he talks about how Jesus, in order to maintain the proper boundaries and uh, emotional regulation, everything he needed, had certain men in his life, certain numbers. The one that represents God. The three, Peter, James, and John, is that inner circle. So I write in the book, the pastors need those three guys, give or take, who know him better than anybody else. Men that will walk with them where nobody else does. They pray with them when others don't, as Jesus did with the, with the inner circle. Mm -hmm. And then outside of the three is the 12, which is a small group. We encourage pastors to be in a small group with other men, with, which almost none of them are. 
there was a value for Jesus in that. There's value for all of us in that recovery. We especially need those groups, which is why our ministry offers a group just for pastors. In October, we're going to start a second group just for pastors. So the main code needs to be the one. That's the father. He needs to have the three. He needs to have the 12, the small group. He needs the 120. That's his church. And we encourage the pastor with the church in order to maintain his own sobriety and sanity. The phrase I use in the book is to walk with a limp, meaning the church needs to know that he's not perfect. He's not Superman. They don't need to know the details, but they need to know that he struggles just like they struggle. And then beyond the 120, there's the 500, the 5,000, which would be the community. He needs to be tied in with the community. What we find is that pastors struggle with this and other addictions when the man code, when that is out of balance, where their relationship with God is not given priority, where they don't have those three accountability guys. They're not in a small group. They're not plugged into the church as a part of the church, not just leader of the church, and if they're not plugged into the community. Mm-hmm. That's great. What are some things that when you were when you were writing this book and putting it together that were... Um, maybe even a discovery for you or something that you hadn't thought about before, or maybe even something that you just got particularly passionate about that you had forgotten about, or just, I don't know, was there anything that surprised you in the writing process of this book? I think the thing that came to me, because I was already in recovery for several years when I wrote it, was that I asked men that had been through my 90-day recovery program that I do, pastors who had been through that program, and I asked pastors that were in my pastor's group, what are some of the keys for your own recovery? And as I asked that question and got these answers, got some very consistent responses, one of the things that really jumped out was the need to share my story. Mm. Uh, Doesn't mean they stand up in front of the church and say, I've been looking at pornography. Doesn't mean that they confessed to an affair that happened 20 years ago. I mean, that's not my business. How they handle that, that's between them, their theology, how they choose to process that. But it means someone needs to know my story. And so what we did that I think makes the book particularly unique is I actually have 17 pastors, brave souls. Uh, Some are missionaries, some are pastors here, some are in Africa, Europe, Asia. Some are very well-known, some are much lesser well-known have told their stories in the book. So I've got a chapter where each of these 17 guys share it. Now, we mask their names. We use fake names, and I share that it's not their real name. And we disguise enough of their stories so no one's going to say, okay, I know who that is. But it's still their way of helping other men by sharing their story. And that was the consistent thing. And I literally have had dozens of guys, and this has shocked me, who have said, why did you ask me to do that? Because I <laughs> I would have loved to have told my story because I've learned that that's such a huge part of my own recovery is that because we've lived in this shell where we feel like there's nobody we can talk to. And when they start finding a, an avenue to get that out, it's such a healing thing for them. So I think that's what surprised me more than anything was how much telling the story mattered. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like you're going to have to write a sequel and you could you could name it More Broken Vessels. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good um, idea. Now, one of the things that I think comes up, especially when we start talking about pastors and the fact that pastors, they have a position of authority. Yes. There is a sense of as an overseer with that authority and especially the culture in which we're living in where we realize that that can so easily be abused and misused. 
what does it look like then? And I don't know if you touch on this in the book, but I'd like to still get your response. What does it look like then when any kind of sexual brokenness issue comes out with a pastor? And what are some best practices that you would recommend for how a the individual, the pastor and, and his inner circle can navigate that, but also a church and recognizing that there are maybe different categories and layers to that. I'm not saying that, you know, from a sin standpoint, listen, it's all falling short of the glory of God, right? But we don't, I'm not going to say it's categorically exactly identical. A pastor, you know, three or four times a year looks at pornography on his computer. It's not categorically identical to a pastor sexually abusing people in his church or, you know, uh, going, seeing prostitutes and those kinds of things. So how would you answer that in, in the not only just in the cultural climate that we're in, but also just from a biblical standpoint of how do we navigate the whole re- res- reconciliation, but possibly even restoration process for pastors? Well, and I do address that in the book and also a book. This was actually the sequel. The first book I wrote kind of on this subject is called Porn in the Pew. And we devote a chapter there to that very thing. And a couple things I would say. One is on the front end, the pastor needs to have so much accountability. We, I love the Modesto Manifesto that Billy Graham did in the 1940s. So we encourage the pastors to have a really strict uh, set of rules that they're going to abide by, and the church knows those. I'm not going to be alone with women. I can have lunch with women. Anyone I text, my wife has access to my phone, those kinds of guardrails being in place. But from a church perspective, what we suggest is that we be proactive. Every time, at least it seems like every time we read about one of these horrible things that happens, it's because the church, maybe not because of but we learned there was no proactive step taken. Every church, every minister feels like, well, I'm reading about it. It's happened 30,000 times this year in the papers, but it can never happen to us. And so we don't have a plan. And so then we react to it, we scramble, and that's where we mess up. Uh, a proactive plan that lays out in a handbook form, and we would develop them. The problem is that every denomination and church and tradition, they're going to land differently on where they fall on some of these things. What disqualifies a pastor? What does it? But there needs to be a proactive plan, a guidebook that each church has in advance that says this is how we handle these situations. At the end of the day, we do believe that restoration should always be a part of that. Doesn't mean that he's restored to his position in the church necessarily, but he is restored to the body of Christ. He's restored to serving, again, not necessarily vocationally, but God's redemptive purposes need to be a part of this because otherwise God doesn't get the win and anything God allows God uh, is going to use. So the key word, I think, is proactive. We've mm-hmm. got to be proactive. We can't wait till it happens. There needs to be a plan in place that everyone is signed off on ahead of time. Can you share or think of any stories that where you have seen that process go well in a church or for a pastor and maybe what that looked like? Rarely. Um, you know, I, I wish I wish it would just come to the top of my head immediately. But I only think of two or three, and they've been in small churches where um, the pastor in each case was well-known in the community, and he was seen as a pastor of the community, not just the church. Mm -hmm. And so there was such a connection 
in the community that it was almost as though the community's will overrode the will of the church, meaning the church was almost forced to open up the possibility of him returning at some point uh, to a position in the church because the community rallied behind him and had seen the big picture and, and all the good that he had done and were willing to give it a chance for a process to play out. I think there's two ditches we fall into. One ditch says, now we're just sitting out to pasture. We're done with you. We, you know, we, we can't even go there. And the other ditch says, no matter what, you come on back. What we would love to see happen in every single case, and we've worked with some churches that have had pastors do this, is that in all cases where the pastor has been confronted and dismissed because of something he's done, whether it's sexual offense or simply, I shouldn't say simply, but um, pornography affair, something where it's not a sexual offense, but it's an improper activity for sure, is for the pastor to get help, the church help him get help, help pay for that to support him and his family, and then have the pastor come back to the church or at least to its leadership with the opportunity to make amends. Part of his recovery process at nine, apologize, own it, say to the church, and then have the leaders of the church rally around that guy, pray for him and his wife. Doesn't mean he's restored his service in the church, but that's the process we believe, and it's in the book, should happen in every single instance because that's how the church goes through the healing process of this broken vessel, if it's become public knowledge. One other question that I want to ask, and then and then if there's anything else that we haven't uh, touched on from the book, I'd love for you to share that. But sure. I've known many pastors in, over many years, and um, uh, right or wrong, whether it was intentional or unintentional, most pastors that I have known gain a sense of their own personal identity from their position as a pastor. How important is it in terms of this whole recovery sort of transformation kind of uh, reconciliation process for a pastor when there's sexual brokenness issues in his life? How important is it for him to have a realignment of priorities or even a reframing of what his identity really is about versus his position as a pastor? Huge. Uh, I think that by and large, women draw their self-esteem from relationships, especially their husband, and men draw their self-esteem from their work. And so for pastors, that means, how's my church doing? Nichols and noses, how are the offerings? What's our attendance doing? We've noticed since COVID that a lot of pastors are leaving the ministry, even more so than before. A lot of that is because they feel like failures because churches are just down by and large because of COVID and the response to it. And so the, the mistake is that men, have, especially pastors, have tied their whole identity with what they do instead of who they are and who they are in Christ. And it is shocking to me as I work with pastors one-on-one -on -one and within our groups to find out that one of the weak links for them in their disciplines is their own spiritual disciplines. Lack of spending time with God for themselves as opposed to the next sermon prep that they need to do. And so it's a huge thing for them to realign it and understand who they are in Christ, who they are matters more than what they do. And that God is way more concerned with where they are than uh, where the church is. And they need to focus on the depth of their ministry and quit focusing on the on the breadth of their ministry. That's not their business. That's God's business. And so you, you fit on a soft spot, I think, for so many pastors. It was mine for years. 
Mm -hmm. uh, it was almost, it, it felt impossible for me to ever identify as a husband, as a child of God, as a friend. I was a pastor. And that, that was this huge thing. And if that wasn't going well, that meant I wasn't going well. Well, the irony to me, and maybe it's even more of a paradox, is that when a pastor has their identity deeply rooted in their understanding of being in Christ, they actually are going to be exponentially more effective as a pastor when that's not the case. When they find their identity in their pastor position, they're not going to be nearly as fruitful. So it's kind of, there's an irony there. There's a, there's a paradox there. So is there anything else that we haven't touched on in the book that you re would really like to say? And also just what, what kind of message of hope would you want to give to pastors out there that are listening or somebody who knows a pastor in terms of how can we help our pastors um, move into uh, just living lives of greater integrity? Yeah, the, the only other thing I think I'd say about the book is that it does lay out a more detailed road back for pastors. So if you have fallen, not, and I don't mean road back into pastoring, but a road back to personal integrity, holiness, finding who you are in Christ separate from your job description. And that's really, really important. Um, where do we find hope? That's a great question. And that's why our ministry is called There's Still Hope, because we really believe in that. And I think it's connection. It's, it's guys connecting with other guys, pastors connecting with other pastors that have been there, that understand it, that get it. And, and it's it's a magical thing. My pastor's group, and again, we're starting another group soon, only because the first group has gotten too big. And, and, and it's these guys are almost giddy as they share with one another because it's like a, an opportunity for them to feel like they can be completely real. And that's where the hope is found. They've got to find a group. They've got to find a place to go where they can be absolutely real and say, man, I looked at a woman with lust this week and, and I know I shouldn't have, but I've got to, I've got to share this because it's killing me. And to see a guy be able to share that with a group of other guys is, is absolute magic. So I, I think that's the hope is connection with other guys, guys that have been where they've been. So where can our listeners go uh, to get more information about the book and your ministry? Well, thanks. Our website is theirstillhope.org, and it's T-H-E-R, uh, theirs, you can spell theirs, no possibly, theirs, still hope, there is still hope. So theirstillhope.org, and it lists uh, the various groups we do. We have seven uh, groups that we do for guys. Uh, they're struggling with sexual brokenness. We use my workbook, uh, Life Recovery Plan, and it's a one-year process, so we encourage guys to look into that. We also um, offer a 90-day recovery plan for guys that want to intense work with me and their own recovery. All of that can be found on our website, theirstillhope.org. And my wife works with spouses who are going through the trauma of brokenness uh, on part of their husband. And we also have couples groups now that we've launched as well. And would love for people to check us out and um, learn more about our ministry, theirstillhope.org. It has my personal cell number there. They can contact me, reach out to us anytime, and we'd be honored to help any way that we can. Yeah. Well, thanks, Mark. And I really want to just say thanks for creating these avenues and spaces, especially for pastors, because that is such a that's a huge hurdle a lot of times for them to feel like they could even consider engaging in an environment where they could be honest about their 
uh, sexual sin and secrets. So thank you for doing that. And thank you for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you for being one of our biggest supporters from day one. And the time you've spent with us in person, we've been in San Antonio. And anytime I reached out, you've always been there for us. And you don't know what that means to us and other guys that you've been mentoring, both intentionally and unintentionally. You've done a great job of it. And we are very appreciative for Be Broken and all that you've done. Well, I appreciate that. We 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 try to live into what we believe, and that is that we are better together. So, um, but listeners, we're going to put all that in the show notes. We're going to put information about the book and Mark and Beth's ministry, um, and then some other resources that will also just help you kind of take your next best steps. Uh, if you are a pastor out there, please don't wait to take the next step that you need to take to get into these safe environments where you can actually start unpacking your story. And as Mark said, kind of traveling that road back to who God actually intended you to be. And I think that's going to make your ministry thrive even more. Uh, We're glad you've been with us and we look forward to seeing you back here again next time on the Pure Sex Radio program. Take care. Pure Sex Radio is paid for by Be Broken Ministries. Visit us online at puresexradio.com.